Please stand for the reading of the word. Reading from Exodus 15, 22 to 16, 5. Bitter water at Merah. Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. When they came to the oasis of Merah, the water was too bitter to drink, so they called the place Merah, which means bitter. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. What are we going to drink, they demanded. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Moses threw it into the water, and this made the water good to drink. It was there at Merah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of, these, any of the diseases I sent on Egyptians. For I am the Lord who heals you. After leaving Merah, the Israelites traveled on to the oasis of Elam, where they found 12 springs and 70 palm trees. They camped there beside the water. Manna and quail from heaven. Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elam and journeyed into the wilderness of sin. Between Elam and Mount Sinai, <clears throat> they arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There, too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us into the wilderness to starve us all to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day they will gather food, and when they prepare it, there will be twice as much as usual. Thank you, Brian. How's everybody doing today? Good? It's good to see you. Well, we are taking the fall to study the Old Testament book of Exodus. Hopefully you've been here for some of that. And last week, uh, we ended kind of the first phase or the first section of the book, you could call it that, where God brought the people out. And that's really what the word Exodus means. It means an exit or a way out. And that's exactly what God did. The first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus are about how God miraculously brings his people out of Egypt. But what we've said each week is that he doesn't just bring them out. He brings me and you out too, that this story isn't just historical. It's also incredibly personal. Because at some point, every Christian has to leave their old way of life behind. Every person in this room who is following Jesus, we have to leave our old way of life behind. You have to have an exodus. This is one of the things that it means to be a Christian. It's not just repeating a prayer. It's not just attending a church or belonging to a religious affiliation. Part of what it means to be a Christian is that God has brought you out of the old life, the old captivity to sin, the old enslavement to sin, and he has brought you out into this new life. And so every Christian at some point has to leave their old way of life behind and have their own exodus. And so today we, uh, we start the second phase or section of exodus. God has brought them out of slavery, but now he wants to teach them how to live like free people. 
Or you could say it like this, that God has delivered them, but now he has to teach them how to live. And that's what the rest of the book is about in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. If you've ever, you know, read, started trying to read the Bible through in a year and you started in Genesis in January and then, you know, you get February or March, you get to some of these books that you're struggling to get through. You are getting to the parts where, where God is teaching his people who have come out of Egypt how to live. Through Moses, he instructs them and orders them gives them a way to live their life. And he does the same thing for you and me. When you became a Christian, you were saved and your sins were forgiven because of grace. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. You are free from guilt and condemnation. Objectively and legally, you are free. You are new. But wouldn't we all admit today that even though God saved us and we are free from guilt and shame and condemnation, wouldn't we all admit that we struggle to live like God wants us to live? And so we feel condemnation and shame and guilt. And objectively, we're free and saved. And legally, we're free and saved. But mentally and emotionally, we don't feel free and saved. And we feel stuck living this life, the old life that we have and the new life that God wants for us. Of course you do. We all do. And so part of being a Christian is learning how to live a godly life. Let me say that again. Part of being a Christian is learning how to live a godly life, the life that God wants for you. And this is important to know that God has a way that he wants his people to live. God has a way that he wants his people to live. This is true for you, and it's true for me, that God has a way. He wants his people to live. Not so that you can be saved. Jesus has saved you. Grace has saved you. But because you are saved, the way that you live does not save you. The way that we live and the godly life that we live is because we have been saved. And I like to say it like this. I've been saying it like this lately, that We're not trying to earn it, we're trying to learn it. I can't earn it. I can be as good as I can wanna be today and try to be as good as I can be, and I cannot earn God's salvation. That was Jesus on the cross through grace by faith. But I can learn how to be more like Jesus. I can learn how to live a godly life. I can learn how to practice the disciplines that Christians have practiced for thousands of years. Not because I'm earning anything, I'm not letting God down when I fail, and I'm not, you know, making him love me more when I succeed, but I'm learning how to live the life that God wants me to live. And by the time that it's all said and done, rest of Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, maybe a little bit of Numbers, but not really in Numbers, God is going to give his people over 600 laws. That's a lot, 600 laws. And 10 of them are known as the Ten Commandments you're very familiar with, and we'll talk about that next week. But in total, there are 613 laws that God gives his people to teach them how to live like his people. To which you hear that maybe, or you read that, or maybe you've tried to read them, and you maybe have this question, I have this question, why so many? Why so many? Why would God give his people 600 and 13 laws. And if you've ever read them, by the way, you know that many of them seem bizarre. You know. 
Maybe somebody at work or somebody you know who is not a Christian and, and is against Christianity has, you know, picked a few verses out of the Old Testament and said, like, well, what about this? You know, well, you don't live by this, you know, and they quote something very bizarre in the Old Testament. You know, there, there's laws about certain foods and certain types of clothes and facial hair covering all kinds of different topics. And so the question that I get asked often, actually, as a pastor, and a question that's worth asking is, why does God care about shellfish? Why does God care about facial hair? Why, why does God care about those types of things? And I love that question. I absolutely love that question. And I want you to know that if you're ever at work or your neighbor or your relative ever tries to like get you, you know, catch you with a contradiction in the Bible because you don't abide by the Old Testament, the first thing I would tell you is don't worry about their opinion. They don't read the Bible. So the people who will argue with you about the Bible, they don't read the Bible, okay? But if you read the Bible, here's what you come to learn is that, is that God gave these 613 laws for lots of different reasons. And we don't have time to really talk about all of those reasons. And I don't think you probably came to church today to learn about God's opinion about shellfish and facial hair. But if you'll give me just a moment to go down this rabbit trail, because I see some of you guys with really nice beards getting nervous on me this morning. Uh, I just, if you'll give me just a second to go down a little rabbit hole, I think it's important and would be helpful for you to know what God was up to when he gave Moses all of these, of these laws, okay? So you have to remember that, that God brings his people out and he is trying to teach them how to have a relationship with him. He is a cloud in the sky during the day, and he is a fire in the sky by night, and he's using his prophet Moses to lead his people. And so he wants them to learn how to have a relationship with him. But that's not the only thing that he's doing. He is doing that primarily, but it's not the only thing that he's doing. God was also trying to teach his people how to be a nation, how to be a country, so to speak. And so there are a lot of those 613 laws that are about how to exist as a government. Let me just give you one example. In, uh, in Deuteronomy 23.19, it says, do not charge interest on the loans that you make to a fellow Israelite, whether you loan money or food or anything else. Now, why would God care about loans on, or interest on loans? And does that mean that you can't charge interest on a loan? No, that's not what it means, even though that would be an interesting conversation that we could have. This is an example of a law in Deuteronomy that God was giving for how they should exist as a government, how they should exist as a nation. And God says, my nation, Israel, I want you to manage your money and, and your financial institutions in a certain way. And so this was an example of the, the, the civil laws. You could call them civil laws kind of like their constitution, if you want to think of it that way, of the way that you operate as a government. And it has nothing to do with you and me living in 2022. Uh, there's wisdom we could learn from it, some nuggets we can mine from it, but they were civil laws for the people trying to be a nation. But then God also, beyond civil laws, he also had what we could call ceremonial laws. And these were the laws that differentiated his people from everyone else. Based on certain behaviors, you could know that someone was a part of Israel. Things like circumcision and when to wash your hands and cut your hair and don't eat certain foods, right? An example of this would be Leviticus. He says, you may eat any animal that has a divided hoof and that chews the cud. 
There are some that only chew the cud or only have a divided hoof. You must not eat them. When I read that this week, I thought, I have no idea what that means. So I called my hunting buddies and I said, hey, what animals is he talking about? And my hunting buddies pretty much said, he's saying you can eat the cow, but you can't eat the pig, right? Now, does that mean you can't eat the pig? No, that's not what it means. God is saying to his people for this time, historically, He's saying, my people, Israel, I want you to stand out from the other people. And so if you've ever watched any movie that's a time period piece about time, you know, back then, it was barbaric. Nobody was carrying around hand sanitizer, okay? (laughs) And so God says, you're going to wash your hands at certain times, and you're going to not eat certain foods, and you're going to, you know, have certain surgeries on your private parts and things like that, because you are going to be different from the surrounding people and nations and tribes around you. Has nothing to do with you. Not anything to do with you. There's some wisdom in it. Certain foods are better for you than other foods. Washing your hands, good thing, okay? But it has nothing to do with your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Are you still with me? So you got civil laws and you got ceremonial laws, but... Then there is a third category that we could just call moral laws. And moral laws are laws that stand the test of time because to break them is to go against the very nature of God. The Ten Commandments would be an example of moral laws. Not dependent on society or context. It's always against God's law to to steal or to kill. Does that make sense? Because it goes against the nature uh, of God. And so Jesus showed up in the New Testament. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, which is a a larger conversation. But then he reinstituted certain things and kind of emphasized certain things. But what he was emphasizing was the moral law. So he said, you you know, you said, you've heard it said, don't murder. I say, don't get angry. He's getting to the, the root of the moral laws. But you and I have no connection to the civil or the ceremonial things. Those were for those people in that time, for that nation, for what God was trying to set them up as a government entity. Are you with me? Okay, that was a little rabbit trail, okay? But let me tell you why I told you all of that. I told you all of that because God was passionate about teaching his people a way of life, a way of life. And he wasn't giving them laws to be mean or to be vindictive or to set them up to fail. He gave them his laws in order for them to be able to live the best life possible. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that the people, God's people kept looking at the other nations and saying like, man, I don't know. I think the way they do it may give me a better life. And God kept saying, no, 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 live this way. Live this way. And they would worship other idols and other places, and God would bring them back and say, no, this way. This is the way of life. This is the way I want you to live your life, not because I'm being vindictive or controlling or mean, but because my way of life for you is the way for you to have the best life possible. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it to the full, life abundantly. And what does he say about the devil? That he comes to still kill and destroy your life. And so God has this way of life for his people. And the same thing is true for you. He has a way of life for you, a way that he wants you to live. 
So many of us grew up in religious environments where someone took God's ways and used them as a punishment or used them as a, as a judgment or to make you feel bad that we struggle to, to comprehend that his commandments are really just his instructions for the best life that we could have. The best life that we could have. Which brings us to the scripture that Brian read for us today. The people have just come through the Red Sea in miraculous fashion. Their enemies have been destroyed. There's no one pursuing them. They are not bound by any commitments prior. They are 100% free people, and they are beginning this new life with God. What seems like a blank canvas, but only three days, just three days into their journey They can't find any water to drink, and they begin to complain. But God, being God, miraculously provides for them again, and they find this water, but it's bitter, and he tells Moses to throw the wood in. He throws in, it's not bitter anymore, and they can drink it. It's a a great story about how God provides. But in the middle of that story that Brian read for us, God makes a point. He decrees something. And if God's going to decree something, it's important to go and see what God was decreeing. And Brian read it for us. After they drank the water in verse 25, Exodus 15, 25, this is what it says. I want to read it to you again. It says, it was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard. So God has a standard to test their faithfulness to him. And he said, 26, If you'll listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands and keeping all his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. I wonder wonder what that sounds like to you. I've thought about that this week because I've read these verses tons of times leading up to this sermon. And every time I've read it, I've thought, I wonder how that comes across to you. God says to his people, I'm going to test your faithfulness to me. And if you do what I say, if you listen and do what I say, then you won't have to to suffer. But if you don't do what I say, you will have to suffer. He didn't say that. I'm adding that on as a flip side. How does, that, how does that make you sound, feel? How does, how does that sound to you? I wonder if it doesn't sound a little bit controlling. I wonder if it doesn't sound a, a little bit unfair. I thought God was love, Jason. I, why, why can't he just say to the people like, hey, look, here's your spot. I've cleared out everybody for you. You just do what you do. You be you. Why, why does God have to have standards? Why does he have to test the people? And why, if they fail the test, would he make them suffer? I've read this over and over again this week. I've just thought, I wonder how that sounds. I mean, I know how it makes me feel. There's a part of me that feels like maybe God could have done it differently, could have done it better, could have done it a little more fairly. And maybe you're here today, and this is the reason you're not a Christian. You come. But you're like, you know, my hang up with God and my hang up with Christians is it just feels like God's trying to control my life and, and God, you know, uh, God won't let me do what I want to do. Maybe you are a Christian, but you're still struggling with this feeling like 
You know, you're having to kind of live a life you don't want to live. And if that's you, and you would say, you know, as I read this, this, this makes, I feel that. Like it feels a little unfair. It feels a little mean. It feels a little controlling. I kind of wonder, like, does it bother you when a doctor says something like this? Because a doctor comes into your room and he says, listen, I, I, I can heal you. And if you'll listen and you'll do what I say, then you won't have to suffer. Is that offensive? Obviously it is to me because my doctor told me to wear my boot for six weeks and I wore it four and I took it off. And I'm probably going to suffer. And it's not because the doctor didn't want to heal me. It's because I didn't want to listen because I had what I wanted to do by myself. Are you following what I'm saying? But all of us have had that experience where the doctor comes in and says, I can help you, but you got to do what I tell you to do. Is that offensive? What about when a lawyer says it? Like, hey, listen, you're in some trouble. But if you'll do what I say, if you'll listen to me and do what I say, you won't have to suffer. I can help you. Do we look at the lawyer and say, how dare you? (laughs) What about like a a tax accountant? Like, hey, listen, you're going to owe some taxes. But if you'll do what I say, listen and do what I say, you won't have to suffer. A personal trainer. Personal trainer would say, you're going to suffer with me a little bit, but it's more better than the suffering that you would experience potentially. Is that offensive? See, we live in the society that doesn't appreciate authority. We're so offended by authority. And so we tend to view any instruction that inhibits our life as unfair. But the whole reason that God established authority is to govern your way of life or to, or to, or to help um, lead your way of life that will give you the best opportunity for the best life. And this is what God says to them. He says, as a standard to test your faithfulness, if you'll listen and obey, you won't have to suffer. But that last little phrase at the end is the best part. He says, if you listen and obey, then you won't have to suffer. For I am the Lord who heals you. I am the Lord who heals you. And this is at the heart of everything that God is doing. God is trying to heal them. He's trying to heal them. What did they need to be healed from? Well, let's start with 430 years of enslavement that God has brought them out, but they have a way of thinking and a way of seeing the world and a way of finding their self-worth that needs to be healed. And the same is true for you. You have a way of life that you learned before God brought you out, and it goes directly against the way of life that God wants for you. And so God lays out two options for them, suffering or healing. And he lets them choose. Suffering or healing. And I think it would be fair to flip it and also say, if you don't listen and you don't do what I say, you will have to suffer even though I'm the God who can heal you. And so God brings his people out three days into their journey and the first conversation he has with his people is that he's going to test their faithfulness to him. He's going to test their faithfulness. And he was not testing whether or not they were his people. That had already been promised. 
And he wasn't testing whether or not he was going to be committed to them. That had already been promised. He was testing their faithfulness to him. Because that's the only way you will ever know if you are faithful is when you're tested. I love the way Eugene Peterson says it. He says, he says that untested faith does not yet qualify as faith. Only when you're tested do you know if you know what you're supposed to know. If you have what you're supposed to have. And so three, three days in, God says, I've got a standard, and, I, and you're going to constantly be coming up with these opportunities to see if you're listening and obeying, see if you're healing or you're suffering. So this is the conversation God has with them. And we flip just one page to Exodus chapter 16. It's now two months later. The people are traveling again. They left the palm trees in the water and they're hungry, and they have no food, and so they begin to complain. And God tells Moses that he will give them the food that they need, but along with the food that they need, he gives them very specific instructions. He says that for five days, they need to go out each morning and get what they need, but no more than they need. And then on the sixth day, they should go out, and they should get enough for the next two days because the seventh day was holy, and it was a Sabbath. It was God's gift to them. He says that later. We didn't have a chance to read it. And so God, God tells them that they should not work on the seventh day, that they cannot work on the seventh day, that his way of life for them is to rest on the seventh day. And he says that it is a gift to them. And we stopped reading at verse five, but if you go a little farther to Chapter 16, verse 27, this is what it says. Some of the people went out anyway on the seventh day. God says, I'm going to give you the food. Five days, get what you need. Sixth day, get double, because on the seventh day, it'll still be good. I don't want you to go out. And some of the people went out anyway, but they didn't find any food. And the Lord asked Moses, how long would these people refuse to obey me? They must realize that the Sabbath is the Lord's gift to you, and that is why he gives you a two-day supply on the sixth day, so there'll be enough on two days. On the Sabbath day, you must stay in your place. Do not go out and pick up food on the seventh day. So what's happening here? Why is God so passionate about not getting the food on the seventh day? This is the stuff we're talking about. People say, why, like, why does God care about this stuff? Well, God is testing their faithfulness to him. But he does it in a very specific way because he is the God who heals. And so the way that God tests them is the same way that he tests you and me. I want to show this to you. This is the pattern we see all throughout the Old Testament, and, and, and we see it in our life too. And here's the, here's the pattern. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. We have a need. God provides for us or blesses us or comes through for us. He gives us instruction or he teaches us a lesson and then he tests us to see if we learned the lesson and will obey what he told us to do. We have a need, he meets that need, he gives us, teaches us a lesson and then he tests us to see if we will be faithful to the teaching that he gave us. And as you begin to think back over your life, you would be able to see this pattern. God, I need a job, I really need a job, I need to make more money. God provides the job, and in that new job, you now have the opportunity to see 
if you will do all the things that you swore you would do whenever you got a new job or whenever you made more money. God, I'm lonely. I need a relationship. But if you'll provide somebody, then da-da-da-da-da. And so God provides, and you have the opportunity to see if you are still as committed to him as you were when you were desperate. Because when we're desperate, God's commands seem good. But when we have what we need, they seem a little excessive. So this pattern shows up over and over and over again. God says, I'm going to give you the food, but I want to tell you how I want you to manage the food and do it my way. And if you will obey, you will be healed. And if you disobey, you will suffer. To which, if you're paying attention, you would ask, how would they be healed? Like either they have food or they don't. What are you talking about? How would they be healed? Well, this is the best part. Because of all the lessons that God could have chosen to teach his people first, he chooses Sabbath rest. I mean, if he was like you and me, he would have definitely led with sex. That's what we talk about first every time, right? Make sure they know about the sex. When it's off and when it's on, make sure you talk more about sex, 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 sex. God's like, no, we're not going to go there. Or we would say, you know what, well, we need to talk about honoring your parents. Come on, parents, honor your father and mother. Let's lead with that one. Our pastors would say, come on, start with tithing, God. Come on. Or politics or how to vote. God doesn't do that because he's the God who heals. And so the very first lesson that God teaches his people is Sabbath rest. Why would God care so much about the seventh day? Because he's trying to heal his people. And his people had just come out of 430 years of being defined by productivity. You are how many bricks you make. Hey, how was your day today? How many bricks did you make? Did you make enough bricks? You are your productivity. And God says, listen, two months into this, I want to help you to heal. So I want to teach you. That if you'll, if, if, if you'll just do nothing on day seven, I'll provide for you. You don't have to provide for yourself. Your whole life and your parents' whole life and your parents' whole life and your grandparents' and your great-grandparents' whole life, they have taught you and they have modeled for you that you only eat what you work for and you only earn what you work for and you only are defined by what you work for, but I have a way of life for you and you are suffering, and if you'll let me, I will heal you. And here's the first lesson I'm going to teach you. When you're mine, you ain't got to do anything on day seven, and I will provide for you. And what does it say they did? Some of them went out anyway. And why would they go out anyway? How could, I mean, wouldn't everybody, come on, wouldn't everybody be like, you're telling me I don't have to work today, God? I'm in. We say that, we say that, but what we see here is the power of learned behavior. We see God's desire for their life bumping up against their lifelong tendencies, their family of origin, the emotional rewards that they have learned to, 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 to be satisfied by their entire life. Their old way of life was still stronger than their new way of life that God wanted for them. And that's where you and I find ourselves today, that God has a way of life for you that will heal you. Hear me. 
God has a way of life for you that will heal you. You say, what do I need to be healed from? I'm not sick, I don't have cancer. You are sick. Sin is killing you. The devil has come to still kill and destroy your life in subtle ways every day. He comes along and the way of life that goes against God is killing your soul. And God says, I have a way of life that will heal you. But God's way is always on the other side of our old way of life. Katie, first service, called it our comfort zone. I'm stealing that, Katie. Where we are comfortable, what we've always done, we want God to give us a new life in the box of our old life. And God says, right over there, if you'll trust me enough, right over there is the way of life that will heal you. And so for his people, he says, multi-generational patterns, habits, and beliefs about what makes you worth something, we're getting rid of that. And I just want you to do nothing. And I'll show you that I'm your God. Healing or suffering. Healing or suffering. Did you know that the second definition for suffering in the dictionary is tolerate? I didn't know that till this week. That one of the definitions for the word suffering is what you're, what you're willing to tolerate in your life. And God loves you so much and he is so committed to you that he has crafted a perfect way of life that will heal you, but he will not force you to do it. He leaves it up to you. And so as we think about all of the things that Jesus teaches us to do and all the ways that Jesus modeled for us that we could live, we come up with, we, we come to the tension and the battle between our old way of life and God's way of life for us. Continuing to suffer or be healed. I wrote down just a few examples. What about forgiveness? So many of us in the room right now, there is some major hurdle in our life from our past that we cannot get past and we cannot lay down and we cannot forgive. And then a preacher like me walks up here and I read the Bible to you or Jesus says, forgive 70 times seven or whatever. And we say, doesn't he know what they did? Doesn't he know what they did to me and he just wants me to just forgive them? And God says, yeah, because you're suffering and I'm trying to heal you. Your way of life is suffering and I'm trying to heal you. Or sex. We, we know what the Christian orthodoxy says. We know what the scriptures say. To which we say, well, that's not fair. Why can't I love who I wanna love and sleep with whoever I wanna sleep with? And God says, because your way of life is causing you to suffer and I'm trying to heal you. I'm trying to heal you. Or money, we say, why can't I do what I want with my money? Why do I have to give it? And God says, because you've been doing it your way and you're suffering, but I'm trying to heal you. Or we talk about spending time with God and we say, I just don't have time. And God says, I know you don't have time because the things that you are doing are making you suffer, but I'm trying to heal you. Or church, we say, Sunday's my only day off. And God says, yeah, but one of the ways that I heal you is by being together with my family, with your brothers and sisters, worshiping together. I'm trying to heal you. So the question is not, Jason, just tell me what I need to do to stay a Christian. The question is not, what do I have to do to still be a Christian? The question is, what quality of life do you want to have? And how do you believe that you get it? And so today, my challenge for you is, is I want to challenge you. I want to I push on you a little bit 
to trust God enough to try it his way. Trust God enough to try it his way. Whatever it is, that area of your life that you're pushing up against, that that conviction that you know God has put on you for however long it has been and you just can't do it, here's my challenge for you. Trust God enough to try it his way in your relationships, in your sexuality, in your money, whatever it is, whatever the category is, here's what I'm challenging you to do. Trust God enough to try it his way. And because we've trained ourselves to need the things that we do, his ways seem outdated or unfair or controlling, but they are the prescription for the healing of our soul. The healing of our soul. And so I'm, I'm gonna pray for us in just a moment. And then when I'm done, Kaylee will lead us and we'll have an opportunity for communion. But as I was thinking this morning, I was driving in this morning and I was thinking about my sermon and I, I thought of something this morning that I hadn't thought of all week. And it's in the book of Romans. And the, the, you know, I, I said to you earlier, um, God gives 613 laws. Why would he give those many laws? Well, you know, I told you one reason. But the Apostle Paul actually gave us another reason. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says that God gave us his law, and I'm paraphrasing here, to prove to us that we could not keep it and that we needed a Savior in Jesus Christ. And so that, that guilt and shame that we feel this morning when I'm saying, come on, trust them enough to try it, and we feel that like, man, I'm trying to do it God's way, but I keep falling because I just don't know if I... One of the reasons that God gives us a standard is so that we can know that we fall short of that standard all of the time. And he sent his son Jesus to suffer so that you and I wouldn't have to eternally. But he also gives us the opportunity to not have to suffer as much here now because we follow his way. And so when you take that bread and you dip it into that juice, I want you to remember that that represents the blood that was shed when Jesus Christ suffered for you and me. But he didn't just come and die. He also came and modeled a way of life for us, God's way of life for you and me. And as we take that communion today, let's, maybe, it's, maybe it's the opportunity for you and I to say, God, help me to trust you enough to try it your way. I am terrified and I am freaking out right now, God, because I know what I need to do and I don't know if I can do it. But God, if, you, if, if Jesus could go to the cross, I can lay this down. And I can do it your way. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you made a way for me to be forgiven, knowing that I would fall and not meet your standard over and over and over again every day of my life. And so, God, I pray for every person who hears my voice right now that we would not leave here today defeated thinking, well, what's the point? I've been trying. I'll never get it right. But that we would leave here filled with courage, filled with faith, knowing that the Spirit of God is inside of us. The power to overcome sin and death is on the inside of us, just on the other side of our comfort zone, just on the other side of what we're afraid to do. And God, I pray that today we would leave with enough faith to trust you enough to try it your way. 
Whatever we need to lay down, God, I pray you'd help us to lay it down. Whatever voices in our head are telling us right now we can't live a different way, God, I pray that we would trust you enough to know that that's a lie from the devil and that the Spirit of God empowers us to live a new life with you. So God, whatever we need to lay down, whatever we're afraid to lay down, whatever way of life we're afraid to embrace, God, I pray that you would give us the faith to trust you to try it your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.